Welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. In this episode, we feature Dr. Cindy J. Lin, the CEO and co-founder of Hey Social Good, a social impact tech company working to revolutionize social good for people, planet, and profit. Hey Social Good uses data analytics and AI to verify the environmental and social practices of public and private companies. Dr. Lin is an ecologist, environmental engineer, environmental and data scientist, and expert on the environmental impacts of land use and human activities on ecological habitats. She previously worked at the US EPA, where she designed national environmental standards, worked on cutting edge research, implemented policy to address environmental pollution and sustainability, and managed multiple government and private entities to meet environmental standards. She was a US regional expert on the Clean Water Act, expert scientist with the US Applied Climate Change National Work Group, water advisor at the US Embassy in Beijing, and US EPA's top science and policy advisor on the US China team. And a quick production note, my co-host Laurel is on family leave and she will be returning to the podcast later next year. We will have guest co-hosts joining on the podcast over the next few months. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Jessa and today we have Dr. Cindy Lin, co-founder and CEO of Hey Social Good. Welcome Cindy, thanks for joining the podcast. Hi, Jessa. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yay. So we always start off with our first question. How are you connected to AEP? Uh, I'm actually, the first time I heard about AEP is from Laura Glass-Lees. And she had told me that she was part of this association. I remember looking it up, thinking like, oh, that's super cool. I I actually wasn't aware of it. And I think it was an interesting um, kind of organization kind of that kind of is able to cover many different aspects of the environmental and policy part. Yes, Laurel's a great advocate for AEP. She's been... (laughs) Uh, participating in the state board, I think for, since I've known her. So she was actually, I think the first person who told me about it as well, like yeah, right. six years ago. So um, yay, Laurel, keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> so Cindy, you are an entrepreneur, a scientist, uh, very, very involved in the environmental industry and field. And so can you um, start off with telling why, why a career in the environmental field? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I think it started uh, started when I was a like, little kid, actually. So when I was a little kid, I was always the person who um, really worried about trash. <laughs> I saw a lot of people throw trash away and it really bothered me. Um, yeah, I, I don't know where it came from. So that's that's where it started from. And then when I was, all I know is when I was 10 years old, I read this poem in school by Edward Abbey. So thank you to my English teacher. And he is a conservationist. Um, and I just decided at that moment, I wanted to work at the US EPA. Wow. When you were yeah. 10? Yes. That's incredible. Yes. I don't even think I knew the EPA existed when I was yeah, 10. I must, I'm, I'm telling you, it must be my teacher because I don't know how else I would know because my family is not, they're not scientists. They're like business people and I don't, the only, that's the only, my only source is probably from school and from my teacher, of course, who also share with us the poem. And, and then I think I just had that interest about the environment. Um, and I must've read something about the US EPA and told myself like, I'm going to work there one day. <laughs> I love it. The power of educators. 
<laughs> yes. And so did you work there someday? I did. And then <laughs> I made my way to the U.S. and I was a protection agency and I worked there. I started as a graduate student. Uh, to be honest, I didn't even know how I would get there. Like I just had this, it felt like a pipe dream. Um, as an undergrad, I was very confused. I, I actually was an English major. I know. So I know, surprising. Because I thought it's I would great be for writing. Yes, great for writing. I thought I'd be an environmental journalist. Like I wanted to report on problems. That's what I thought. Um, and then I remember thinking, like, well, I need to probably take some biology courses because otherwise I wouldn't know what I'm writing about. And then I changed my major to bio and ecology. And then from there, I that's where I landed. <laughs> wow. So what was your uh, graduate degree in? Um, behavioral ecology and evolution. So ecology. And where did you get your graduate degree from? Uh, so I went to UCLA. Okay. And so from there, was it that, were you targeting working with the, well, obviously you're targeting the EPA since you were 10, but what, did that graduate program allow you to get into um, the EPA? No. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, so I, no, it was not straightforward at all. I think I had that in my head, but I don't know that if I thought it was real because I didn't have any models, to be honest. I just thought I really love doing research. I love uh, biology work. I love, I also have a lot of other things I want to do. At some point, I thought maybe I'd change my major to art history, for example. Um, but I ended up really caring about, um, I would say, like human health. And so I did go on to get my master's in environmental chemistry in the School of Public Health, um, also at UCLA, and uh, staying home close. And I just thought like, well, I don't feel like I learned enough. I think there's always in my mind of like, I need to know more. So, and it was in my master's program that I met um, a professor who told me about this different type of a doctor program. It's a doctorate of environmental science and engineering. And it's a program where you do lots of research, but then you also have to do your final research or dissertation research at a host institute. And that's how I got into EPA is, yes. And I, I honestly didn't know it would be that way, but um, you have to look for a job basically and to try to find your company or organization to support you doing research. And so I was really fortunate at that moment that there were a lot of, I think, that need. So I was able to choose from, like, I, I was able to work at a private consulting firm, at a nonprofit, at another Fed agency. And then the last one was EPA that came through. And I remember thinking, like, oh, if I, if I get in that, that's it. So that's Yay. where I landed. Yeah. So as a graduate student, I started EPA. I love that. I think that's such a great example. Well, one, again, how influential educators were. Yes. in your career. And two is that it's, you knew what you wanted to do. It wasn't necessarily, you didn't know the path to get there, but no. once you know where you want to go, you can make those, I don't say decisions, but you can make decisions along the way that get you closer to that goal. And so I think it's a really good lesson for students or those who are earlier in their careers that even though you don't know how to get there, you yes. can still get there and people will help you along the way if you're able to express yes. to them. But I, I think the hardest part is figuring out what you want to do. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> and, and I would say that's true. I think that, I mean, I would say even, I do it to myself even now um, is that I think it's important to have a goal, even if that goal seems like impossible. 
because you just don't know. And I, what I've discovered now is that when you have the goal, you actually do make decisions that get to it. But when you're not sure, because one of the things I think is hard is you think you need to have a perfect goal. Yes. <laughs> and there are no perfect goals, right? And and the, there's no, you know, why you can change your goal halfway through. You could be like, you know what? I wanted to run a half, I run a marathon, but you know what? I just went on a half marathon. So I think there's, that's the one thing I, I did do is I just had that kind of a thing in my head and I had no idea how I get there. To be honest, if you asked me when I was, you know, freshman in college, I'd have been like, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> but it would be awesome. So I just think along the way, I just didn't let go of that. And it it just kind of somehow I, I made these circuitous decisions that led me there. And I know this isn't the first time or the only time you've done that. So I will say we'll get to that. But um, I it's it's just such a great example of I think having that goal and purpose, even if it's it's big and lofty and ambitious, and if people tell you it's impossible, make it possible. And you're always working towards that. And like you said, I think that's so critical that you can change the goal along the way. Like it's okay. If you get new information or you change your mind and you try something new and don't like it, things can change. And so now that you're at the EPA, what were you doing while you were there? What was your role with the EPA? Yeah. So I was hired on to be an environmental scientist and, um, so the entire time I was there, I would say the first few years, I was trying to work on my dissertation, but I actually had a day job, like a real day job. It was full time. And my job was um, actually the water um, quality coordinator for Hawaii and our um, U.S. islands. Nice. So Pacific islands. Um, and so that meant I worked on everything to deal with water for Hawaii and our islands. So that's like Guam. Um, you know, all the other islands, all the Hawaiian islands, um, CNMI, I don't know where that island is, um, Palau before. Um, and so, uh, and that meant working with the state agencies, um, like the state of Hawaii on trying to make sure they meet certain goals, um, that's under the Clean Water Act. So such as, are they meeting certain standards? Um, if there's any kind of offshore permits. So for example, Hawaii um, and so does California have these very long offshore <clears throat> discharge from um, <clears throat> a treatment plant. And so then we need to make sure like, are they meeting standards? So those kind of things and then setting goals for the state agencies. So that's what I worked a lot in the first few years. Oh, that's really interesting. So you worked with them for the federal goals. So they weren't necessarily where they were, I guess it sounds like there were requirements and goals. They're both. So they were both federal requirements and what we call kind of state water quality goals. Mm -hmm. So we do work with the state to ensure that to meet the goals because the state also funds um, some of the states, right? Right. Okay. So what were some of the biggest challenges that you ran into, into implementing these requirements and or the goals? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I would say part of the biggest challenge, uh, so is uh, so many. I would say one of the <laughs> biggest challenge probably is for the federal government to understand the state's needs well enough, and particularly I think for Hawaii and our islands because they are 
not the main, you know, island or uh, mainland, I mean, it is different. And there are a lot of cultural issues associated with it in, in the way a state thinks about water quality. And so what I mean by that is the goals don't change, the standards don't change, the requirements don't change, but how you implement it, right? The process, how you work with the state to get there really matters. And so that was one thing where, because we're on the mainland, it, you know, here's a really good example, right? So particularly in San Francisco. So I was in San Francisco. We're all about efficiency. Mm-hmm. Got to get things quick, get things fast, you know, hit hit the goals. Everyone's always moving super, super fast. But in Hawaii, for example, they're on a different time set, timeline, right? That makes sense for them. And so what we perceive as efficiency, they perceive as just coming down hard and on their throat to be honest, like it's, mm-hmm. it's not, cause we're not understanding the needs that they have. Like, right. It's kind of like, you know, we have our priorities, but we're not understanding what's the state's priorities. Yes. And so it's, it's really important to make sure that there is either overlap or to work with um, any other partner, right. It's not just the state, but any organization, like first make sure their priorities are met. And then you need to ensure that, you know, if there's additional priorities and then that's met. So I would say that's probably one big thing, but we, we were pretty good. Like we had a really great Hawaii team, um, but that was something we were very, very like worked on. I would say the other thing is it's a big, I would say um, probably obstacle in general for government is that we don't probably talk enough with the public. There's just not enough dialogue between government agencies and the public, to be honest. And that, yes. I, that's still my, that's still my concern. That's been a common thread with a lot of guests on this podcast, because with AEP, there's a lot of work around CEQA and yes. CEQA, you know, being a public disclosure act and the stakeholder engagement involved in that. And so it seems as though, you know, I've mentioned many times, I'm not a scientist and I have a business background, but I've been in the environmental industry for about 10 years. And it's these acts or requirements, it's like they come from a good place. There's a good intent. And so, you know, I'm thinking with the EPA, for example, at the top, you have all these scientists, you have all this data, like we need to get this done. And then, so there's like the top down and bottom up approach. And where a lot of people have spoken about similar initiatives that you mentioned, where it was most successful when they started early on engaging the community, the local communities that they're working within. And I think that seems to be very often overlooked and or rushed. Um, like it's it's a requirement, but how that requirement is done, at least, you know, in California, um, is I think determines the success and the public adoption and the local agencies and stakeholders into supporting the initiatives and working together with you. So I think that's a, a very broad issue within science in general, like looking across, yes. like even beyond the environment and just how things are communicated, um, especially, you know, I'm thinking in terms of COVID, right, <laughs> like correct, that there's a lot around that too. So I can imagine the challenges. And I, I had the, the fortune of spending a month in Hawaii last summer, a house sitting and learned a lot speaking with locals and about the local culture. And so even though it's the United States, there's a lot of additional cultural sensitivities to take into account besides just the geographical challenges. 
Yeah. And that's not just Hawaii, right? So like, uh, you know, uh, so after Hawaii, what I worked on was California. So Mm -hmm. I work with all nine regional water quality control boards. I was the Southwest coordinator uh, for the EPA. So one of them was, I was also the statewide coordinator. So I work with all nine California, um, like I said, the regional water quality control boards, which have, you know, a lot of those policy issues. And it's the same. I would say nine regions in California, every single region has their own way of doing work, their own priorities, their own culture of what's important, what's not important. Um, Nobody ever really likes someone that comes in and just says like, well, I just think you need to do X, right? Like nobody likes to do that. So I think to your point, the key is, you know, working earlier on of really making it feel like a partnership. And, and, and I would say like, that's probably have been that I really worked on learning and work really hard on. So I probably was, to be frank, one of the few EPA people who worked on, um, particularly on California issues uh, that was constantly out in the public. Like I gave a lot of public workshops. I, there was years where every week I met with the state um, because I just felt like if we're going to try to be efficient, Mm -hmm. right. It's not about time. It's about getting um, projects through or getting tasks through or getting people's sense of like, yeah, I want to get this done also that responds to the public needs. Right. And so I just think that that is true anywhere. (laughs) Yes. I, as you're saying this, I was jogging my memory about, we had a guest on earlier this year, uh, Bob Brown, who works up on, in Northern California, you know, kind of coming back to your point about like the different jurisdictions. And he told me a stat I never heard where 10% of, what is it? No, 90% of the population of California lives on 10% of the land. That's correct. And so you think about the other 10% of the people in that 90% of the land, the the needs vary so differently. And in California, particularly, it's such a diverse state that Northern California is so different than Southern California between, and then you have the the rural versus city and especially San Francisco, you drive a few hours East and it's a, it's a stark difference. So in LA as well, of course. And so it's just, it again, a whole other level of challenges and trying to manage that 90% of the land where 10% of the people live. It, it's just, I can't, it's very challenging. It's not easy. It, it is, so, it is a challenge <laughs> I don't need that, to tell you this, but, but then getting out like what you're doing and like getting out and talking to people and understanding them. It's so yes. it, like, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but I was thinking when you're saying it's, you know, being about efficiency, it's about seeing the whole picture. It's not yes. step one, step two, step three. It's like, well, how do we, you know, we can get to step 10 easier if we, you know, do a step like, you know, exactly. 1.A, 1.B. Exactly. And and that's right. And it is a challenge, but I think actually the solution, it's not that it's easy, but the solution is in front of us. Um, and that's just to create better relationships and, and to have a dialogue, right? Because it's okay for us to think about different things, but we all actually have all have the same goal. Like that's what I discovered is we all actually have the same goal. So the other thing I worked on the EPA is I was involved in a lot of lawsuits. <laughs> uh, that was probably Fun. the <laughs> second half of my life at EPA, EPA life. Um, and so I really felt it, you know, 
directly and indirectly when people are unhappy or happy or you know, mostly unsatisfied with what we're doing. Um, and so it really challenged me to think a lot about like, wait, I don't understand. We're trying to do something that's good, that's a public good, right? We're, we're trying to make sure, for example, our water is meeting some standard and it's cleaner. But from that goal to everything below it, there's so much and we can do it better so that we're not getting lawsuits, right? That's usually the biggest one. Or just people um, uncomfortable with what we come down with. So the communication is really important. That's for me, I think as, um, you know, I would say a government bureaucrat, that's what I try to learn the most is how do we communicate better uh, in a way that is meaningful for the person you're talking to um, from their perspective? Because you, you can say like, yeah, but the law, you know, the Clean Water Act, you know, Section 303D requires you to do X, Y, and Z, but they don't care. And it's yeah. not that they don't care, but it's that like they have other priorities. You, you, we have to basically communicate why that's important from their perspective. Yeah. And if we can successfully do that, then it's a win-win-win, right? Because then we don't have to spend funds on lawsuits. We don't have to argue, right? We can just all be on the same page to get to the same result. And I've had <clears throat> actually many successes with that, especially with our permittees. Because I really try to look for like, what is the thing we all can land on? Usually we all want the same thing. And so I always say the same, the thing was like, yes, there's the law, but there's how we implement it and how we implement it is just, just as important. Yeah. Can you share some examples or an example of the success? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so I was involved in a series of number Clean Water Act lawsuits, um, actually in Los Angeles. And um, some of those had to do with ensuring that we put in new standards, for example, like on toxic chemicals, pollutants. Um, and oftentimes these new standards have pretty stringent limits, standard limits. Um, and it's really hard for um, a permittee. So this could be like city of LA, right? It could be uh, city of Long Beach. It could be a, um, a private industry, or it could be, you know, even um, uh, a county government, right? They're required to then have to meet some standards or do some monitoring work. And they're like, we don't have the budget. Now you could take the case of like, well, I don't care. You got to meet the standard. You were supposed to meet that standard yesterday. So do it tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. Or do it today. But that's not practical. And frankly, it's not fair, right? If you're thinking about it from that permittee's perspective. They're like, even if they knew it five years ago, it's not like the one person can make all these changes with budgets and blah, blah, blah. They have their own board that they have to get approval from, et cetera, right? So uh, what I always work with them on is like, look, we there's a standard, there's an implementation plan. Then let's try to identify, hammer out a real practical implementation plan that makes sense so we can responsibly achieve that target and so or that goal, right? Coming back to the word of goals, why I'm so sensitive is we set these very stringent goals, but we can have some you know flexibility on the time component and then require milestones. So that's what we did. So instead of like meeting tomorrow, maybe it's three years, right? And then like on a year basis, let's reevaluate and reassess because maybe that three year was too stringent or maybe that three years was good, 
maybe it was like it could be done sooner mm-hmm. so i think those are the it's no different than like you know any kind of operation you do but it really take that into but that requires discussion point that requires a lot of relationship building it requires a trust on all sides um and so but i have to say that when you're able to do that and i i actually have gone in where i know it's going to take me a year i will go and meet with them every month or every three weeks to get to that end point. So, I'm, you know, I'm always glad that that ended up happening. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. And congratulations. Yeah. You know, yeah I mean, happy at the th- moment, but there, yeah. you know, that was one thing. There's a lot. That yeah. 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 Well, and I was thinking too, when you're like, oh, my life at the EPA, the EPA, I'm like, oh yeah, we haven't even got into post EPA life, which is, uh, you know, a, a whole other book in it, of itself. So, uh, you know, as we started, we introduced you as the co-founder of Hey Social Good. And I know you've done, an, I personally know you've done another, uh, excuse me, uh, many other initiatives besides just Hey Social Good. And so what, how did you transition out of the EPA? What, what was the catalyst for that? And where did that take you? Um, yeah, I actually thought I'd be at EPA forever. I love, I love being at the agency. It, the mission is super important. Um, it probably started a few years before I left, it, and it started because I just, you know, we talked about relationship building. We talk about communication. And one of the things I realized is that we weren't doing enough of it, that for all the work I did, is we worked so hard, not just myself, but a team of people, at, you know, lots of people at EPA worked so hard, like day in and day out to get something through Sometimes what happens is it doesn't get through because there's public dissent, right? Or it just politically wasn't the right timing or et cetera. And then what I started to realize is that, oh, well, we just, we didn't communicate in a way that made sense for people. But it probably all landed on this one uh, day. It was a watershed moment day for me. Um, I have worked at, on our U.S. National uh, Climate Change Workgroup for Scientists, where we're trying to address, using science to address some climate impact issues. And that day, I think I just felt a lot of frustration. I asked every single person around the table, you know, like, what are you doing for climate change? But don't mention your job. And no one could give a straight answer. No one could say, oh, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. And it just really left um, probably like a huge hole in me, to be honest. And then just kind of kickstarted a whole epiphany about my life. Like, what it, what am I doing? I thought I was supposed to be working on something to get us to move forward on environmental issues, whatever that means, right? Um, so that probably made me really rethink everything. And, um, you know, it was also the timing of changes in politics. And so I decided I really wanted to explore what other things I could work on. So I stepped away from the agency and that's now been about five years. So five years ago. Um, And I really look and volunteer with all kinds of different nonprofit organizations. I work with a lot of social enterprises around the different world. And I I realized that there's a huge um, part that social enterprises um, and also businesses can do. And there's a huge gap. Um, What I discovered was that a lot of businesses really want to do the right thing, but they're not sure how, because obviously people like me don't usually go into business. Um, And it was also at a time where I think the term sustainability was starting to get a little bit more 
um, I think, highlighted because prior to that, it was corporate social responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I realized like, oh, I think I might have a role in this space. Anyways, long story short, I uh, co-founded Hey Social Good, and we are a social impact data analytics company. Um, what that means essentially is that we're using data to make improvement. We assess and verify and guide businesses on their sustainable practices. Um, and so we really try to help businesses to identify ways they can improve on their sustainable journey, or we help businesses who are have vendors and aren't certain whether their vendors are sustainable or not, not because of any nefarious reasons, just because the space of sustainability or social responsibility is really, really big and confusing, um, and there's no standards. Yes. So with Hey Social Good, what we've done is we use the United Nations um, Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 goals, as our framework for the, and I the, created and designed a um, social good criteria assessment. And that's how we use, along with kind of um, data analytics um, and some, you know, very streamlined data machine learning to capture data and assess businesses and help them do more. Amazing. I'm like just in awe. And I already know that so I'm still in awe of all that you have accomplished in so efficiently. You know, I mean, I'm thinking you you went to school, you got your doctorate, you went to the EPA and worked with all these public agencies. And then you got into entrepreneurship and are now working are with private businesses. And it's just such a shift, but you're able to apply that that core, your core values really into how you're living your day to day. And so um, I have a few, well, I have a lot of questions, but one question is what kind of businesses do you work with for Hey Social Good? Like what kind of businesses can go through this assessment? Yeah, so we're um, agnostic. So we can do any business. So we have, uh, yes, so uh, we have like consumer packaged goods, uh, brands, fashion, business services, anything. It doesn't really matter because part of it is that we're looking at our core unit and our core unit is just what is that practice a business is taking that uh, reduces harm or is making a positive impact um, in their community or the planet. That's really kind of like our core unit of um, measurement, I would say. Like that's, we're looking for that positive impact. So and, and the reason we do that is because the truth, part of the reason why this space is so confusing is because you can look at anything, right? You're asking like which industry, but the truth is you could also say like, oh, well, you're only focused on say sustainable operations and maybe that's energy, water, and waste, right? But the truth is you can also look at ethical practices. That's actually also part of corporate social responsibility. You can look at governance. And so That's why we specifically look at the 17 goals because those 17 goals capture everything. And it's the reason why we're named a social good. Social good is everything that is making a positive impact. Because the way, one of the things I learned on my kind of sabbatical as I'm trying to work with different partners is that if you have a situation where, um, you know, maybe you're working with a community and they don't have knowledge about what their impact is on the environment, they can't make that better choice. Mm. So if they didn't get the information or the memo that, look, you know, maybe you shouldn't actually put out these emissions, it, it would be a very simple way to substitute your impact, right? 
And if they didn't know about it, they can't make that shift. And so that's about knowledge. That's about education. So if they didn't get that, then they can't make a better, you know, kind of environmental choice. Uh, and the reverse is true, right? So for me, that's why all of it is true. And so if you talk about, you know, one of the goals in the UNSG is no poverty. Similarly, like if you have someone who is struggling because they have, they don't have access to food security, well, then you can't make better choices. Um, this also brings in the issue of environmental justice, which I'm really happy to see that we're finally now coming back again. You know, I actually used to work on some equitable equity issues, environmental justice issues in LA. And so I'm really happy to see that it's actually all interlinked. And so it's not that we only work on one thing. Mm -hmm. um, so for us as a company, that's what we're focusing on is that one unit of impact. So with the business, so when the business goes through your assessment, I assume they get a report and then are there benchmarks on the report that give them advice on what they should be looking to improve upon? So they can request a report and then we can give them basically areas that they can make improvements on. Okay. And I would say for us, it's interesting you mentioned benchmarks and stuff and those kind of, you know, areas. So we definitely do that. But the truth is in the space of becoming sustainable, right, or socially responsible or social good, there's. I don't want to say there's an infinite, but there is an enormous number of ways to make improvement. So I'll give you an example, right? So five years ago, let's say that you're really interested in sustainable fibers because you're a fashion brand. Five years ago, there were only maybe like three or four fibers that people were real kind of knew about, maybe cotton, not even quite organic cotton, even though it did exist, maybe bamboo, maybe rayon. So if five years ago you came up with an index, those are the ones you'd be looking for. But fast forward to 2022, now quite 2023, there's over 20, 25 different fibers that are available for you to choose as a brand that you that is sustainable. And so this is one of the things that Hey Social Good is trying to also make sure that we're on top of is to show that there's actually a lot of different ways a business can do better, not just always savings on energy or savings on emissions and savings on water. But for example, if you are manufacturing and you can change out your glues, glues, right? Instead of using toxic glues mm -hmm. uh, or dyes, right? Every, think about every single package goods that you're using. Like, you know, you go and buy a box of tea. Well, it's actually even to the point of what you source, right? So tea bags, you will hope that the tea bags are biodegradable, but actually there's now tea bags that are not biodegradable and it's made out of plastic. How would you know? But those yeah. are decision points a business can make, right? So for me, there's almost like an infinite number of decision points a business can take or make to become better. Got it. And, um, Another question I had for you, and this has come up quite a bit, is sustainability, being sustainable. And what is your definition of sustainability? Um, yeah, sustainability. It's, a, it's a, that's a good, I'm glad you asked that. Way. What is my definition? Because there's like a thousand different definitions. I know. To be honest, I think sustainability is one of those terms is just hard for people to know. But it's what I said earlier. Sustainability is about taking on a practice or an action that reduces harm or makes a positive impact. So what 
I'm actually, you know, kind of our big vision is trying to get us to us as our, our bigger kind of business world is a sustainable circular economy. So what does that mean? That means basically that when we're producing a widget or a product, whatever that is, that it kind of goes back into our economy, right? So that way I don't have to deal with landfill waste. I don't have to deal with emissions. And there's actually lots of good examples of businesses who are doing that, right? So imagine basically now upcycled, um, you know, plastic is one. Now, I'm not saying upcycled plastics doesn't have its own kind of issues. It does, but it's less than virgin plastic, right? Um, and then you can reuse, it's the repair, the regenerate. And I really believe that as an economy, we can do that. Then we're actually now, every time we're creating a widget, we're also creating the source for our next product. Right. Right. So we can create the source for it. We're using it and then we're using it again in a different form. We're creating this. Then we don't have to actually worry about the fact that 80 to 90 percent of our landfills in the United States are almost near at capacity. So what are we going to do? Are we going to dig more landfills? That's one. Right. That's one that's very, very immediate. Besides all the emission issues, I, I find that carbon emissions is something everybody uses, but very hard for people to understand, mm-hmm. right? Like, what, what is your carbon footprint? You're like, I don't know. Is five pounds a lot? Is 50 pounds a lot? Is 10,000 yeah. pounds a lot? But people can imagine a landfill and people can imagine like, no, I don't, I don't want you to dig a big landfill out in my backyard. But that's where we're going to have to go to. Right. And so talking about all these things and you know, the circular economy from a lens of sustainability and, you know, taking what you do to protect the, like you, Cindy, take to the actions you've taken to have a positive impact on climate change. Is like, what's your dream for the environmental profession? Yeah. Wow. My dream for the environmental profession. And when you say environmental profession, just anybody working in environmental space. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I think my dream is that we, it's hard. I really want all of us to work on similar goals. I find that, to be honest, in the environmental profession, um, and it's the nature of the beast, we get a little bit lost on different issues. I would say, here's a successful example, though, right? It, it took a long time, but successful example is um, the ban of the single plastic bag. That was something that was really easy for, I would say, the environment profession for everybody to kind of rally around and to get eventual, like, you know, public support on um, I think my dream is for us is in the raw profession to work frankly with business for them to be more focused on reducing whatever that means and or improving. Uh, policy is super important. Don't get me wrong. I worked on policy for a long time, a part of my career. Um, and, it, and we need policy, but we need people to, to be in different spaces. So mm-hmm. I think for me, it's, I'm not giving you a straight answer. I think that's really hard. No, talk I, I, it. I mean, say... <laughs> it's a big question. I get it. I didn't yeah. expect a bullet point. Don't worry. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. I think at the end of the day, it's just that we don't, we work together and we don't lose focus. Like that's probably the, the two most important part. Sometimes I find that we get a little bit lost in our little thing, even the raw and raw professionals. And sometimes it almost ends up we're not 
we're not we're fighting instead of working together. Because in my profession is huge, right? That includes academics, government, right? Um, you know, the permitted, I mean, all professionals, everybody working in that space, consultants, everybody actually has the same dream, I think, right? Just, just reduce our harm. Um, so if we could, to going back to what we said earlier, is kind of take a few steps back and think about like, okay, well, what's our goal? Can we try to make this work and move forward? Yeah, I think I, I love that, like kind of how you, towards the end, we're starting to summarize around like, let's all coalesce around these cultures. I think the UN, oh my gosh, and I'm sorry, my memory is terrible these days, but the UN, at, what's the acronym for the 17 goals? SDG, Sustainable Development Goals. Thank you. I think those are great. It's a great model. Like we can all go towards that. It's an international goal. And with the international world and economy that we're in, international world, international economy that we live in in today's yeah. world, it, it is great. I mean, that's a great framework. And when you were saying this, and I thought, you know, working with businesses, like working together instead of fighting, and we all have different ideas on the way things should be done. But like you said, at the end of the day, we want clean air, we want clean drinking water, we want, you know, a good quality of life, we want health. And I was speaking uh, a few weeks ago with an intern, she is in the environmental profession, she's doing an internship. And and she was like, well, how do you deal with things like when you're working on projects or with businesses and you know, basically they're not doing good. Like, you know, they're, and for me, like the, you know, an, a, an example, I'm not doing this myself, but would be like oil, like, right. Big oil, plastic. Right. And for me, I'm like, you just want to do better than you did the day before. You're not going to fix it yes. overnight until I stop driving a car, a gas yeah. car, riding in gas fuel cars, using plastic you know, what do I expect? Like, I'm still part of that problem. So I can't, you know, for example, like, again, I'm not doing this directly or anything, but if I was working with an oil company, you know, if I could bring my perspective and help them be better, help them do better, like I can feel good about it. And I know, you know, 20 years ago, my answer might've been like a lot different and more idealistic, but over time it is collaboration because there is products I use and that the oil industry produces. And so I think there's a lot of ethical things that um, people wrestle with and like, how do they do this day to day? And how do you, you know, I know people who like you like seeing trash and feeling guilty. I see trash and feel guilty. And once in a while I buy a bottle of water, like if I'm driving on a long trip, cause I forgot my water bottle. I'm like, you know what? I tried to do this better today. I didn't, I forgot my water bottle. Yeah. Like that's okay. You know, I'm not going to beat myself up about it. And, and so I really think that's important is realizing like, we're all, we all have like our, you know, smaller communities, but we're all part of, you know, we're all part of the same country. Well, most people probably listening to this podcast, we're all part of the same world and this ecosystem and learning that we're more alike than we are different. I think is a really great way to approach problems. Yeah, I think so. And I think we just have to make, we have more people make more progress. I feel like what's been happening is we have a few entities making progress, but then the rest haven't. Not, not, not a complaint about it, just is all kinds of reasons why that hasn't happened, right? Mm -hmm. But we need more. We need 95% of people to make progress. Because it, it can't just be that we get a few people to do it and then we think it's not it's not working, right? Like at the end of the day, what haunts me probably is every year that 
you know, there's different ways of charting kind of pollution, right? One is like I mentioned, carbon dioxide emissions or greenhouse gas emissions. And but every year it's like the highest on record, right? And so, and when you have that, that huge, it's like overwhelming, very negative gloom, it's, it's hard to move forward. I almost feel like you can't think about it, right? It's almost like, you know, I don't know, like in school, you have a final. Well, just take your quiz first. <laughs> like, because you actually, I can't do anything about the final right now. What I can do is try to get more of us to do one thing better. That's all we can do. But if every single one of, like, think about it. So I always say to people about the straws, the whole straws argument. Like, lots of people have argued with me about the straws. Well, what does it really matter? It's just one straw. I was like, but here's the thing. Like, let's just assume every day, every American used a straw. That's 330 million straws. That's hundreds of pounds of plastic. So I think when you think of it in that way, yes. you're like, oh, right? And so, and, and frankly, I'll go back to like, you know, US EPA came about because the public demanded it. So it worked. Like there was not... There wasn't an environmental protection agency. There was kind of, there was a government, but it was in another department. But again, I, that's why I really believe in the power of the grassroots. We've changed a lot of things in that way. And so I think we have to try to get the big policies, of course, but we now need to work on all the grassroots and getting more people to feel like, yeah, I'm going to make that one thing. Yes. And it's humongous. It's actually humongous if you think about it, right? If you think about how many businesses are there, um, and if every single business businesses actually did something, I mean, there's somewhere between 20, 30 million businesses in the U.S. If we can get every single one of them. That's my dream. If we can get every single one of them. Forget about doing something positive. Just start thinking about it. Right. Well, right? I or think. Or start tracking it. Yeah. And a lot of this, and you'll see where I'm going, is storytelling, right? And yes. I think, you know, you use the straws as an example and there was that viral image of a sea turtle with a straw in its nose. And it was so impactful for so many people who aren't thinking about it to one, think about it and to two, to be like, do I really need the straw? Is it really worth it? And I know this has been a very important part of your career is working with the public and storytelling. And then you had another goal that you've recently achieved. Would you like to tell us about it? Yes. 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 <laughs> I had, <laughs> I had this, another pipe dream, um, that started about eight years ago, but I had this dream of putting together an environmental film festival. Um, and then this year we started it, the San Diego Environmental Film Festival. And uh, just a month ago, we put our first film festival together um, on the UCSD campus. Yeah, That's amazing. Eight years, the seedling in your mind and you just yes. achieved it. That's amazing. Congratulations. I know it was a Thank huge you. success. Like tell right. us all about it. Uh, yes. Yeah. So first it started because I'm a film buff. <laughs> I love movies. I love stories. I love hearing stories. I don't know that I'm good at telling stories, but I love hearing stories um, ever since I was a little kid. And I think that I just re probably, you know, I mentioned earlier that I really struggle with like how we communicate better with people, with the public, particularly when I was EPA. And sometimes I would get frustrated thinking like, oh, shoot, gosh, literally that person watched that one movie and it was like a 45 minute movie. And they're like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to do X. I'm like, I bet you have every person watch a movie. <laughs> so I think that's where it came from. Of I realized that people who are filmmakers are excellent storytellers. 
And if we can get more filmmakers to focus on stories, not just about the environment, but about environment and people, environment, people and community or environment and water, right? That people would be uh, inspired to do something different. And when I say inspired to do something different, I'm not even talking something huge. All I'm thinking, all I want from people is to think a little bit differently and realize like, oh, wait, do I need to do X? Because you can't ignore the fact that in the United States, our culture is a culture of convenience, right? So even EPA, we we don't, we're not preventive in the way that like we're first in line to say, this is what you can't do. EPA, the agency is all about like, we do something and then we're like, oh, actually this is harmful for you or this is harmful for the environment. It's kind of like subsequently, then we try to correct. And this is not to say one way or the other is better, but that's the reality. So if that's the case, I all I want people with, you know, stories or movies is for people to feel inspired to think like, maybe I don't have to do it this way. Maybe there's a different way. And in that different way, as it turns out, it's better for different people or different animals or different land. So the San Diego Environment Film Festival really has, um, is unique in that we focus on four categories of film. So film about air and water, of course, but about land and about people. Again, back to that whole issue of everything is interweaved and interrelated, right? And so for every single one of this, there's a story of somebody or a community or an animal or person where we're all interlinked and connected and want people to go to films and have fun and enjoy, but then learn something. And then hopefully when they leave, they're like, oh yeah, you know what? I'm going to do something different. Or maybe I'm just going to learn more about it. So that's my, that's my dream. I love it. This is fantastic. I'm so excited for you. What an achievement. And selfishly, I'm excited because it's in San Diego and I live here. (laughs) So where can people find out more information about, um, I assume there's going to be an annual. Yes. Okay, yes. great. So where's yes. the best yes. way to find information about the next event? Yeah. So the next event will be next fall. Um, and, but you can go to go on Instagram at sdaf underscore org, I think is our Instagram <laughs> channel. And then our website is sdaf.org. That's S-D-E-F-F.org. So those are probably two places right now that you can find information about. Um, yeah, and we're actually going to do a spring, kind of a small spring event. Yay! Uh, because there, we had some really great films. Um, so we wanted to showcase some of the other ones that spoke about different issues. Uh, but yeah, those are different places. It'll be, it's annual every fall. Um, and if people know filmmakers or storytellers, please let them know, have them submit their films on Film Freeway. We'll probably open our film um, submissions, uh, you know, in January, um, this time much earlier so we can get more films even to show. But yeah, it's, it's the idea is that it's fun. The idea is that people go to learn, to have a conversation with your friends, your family that you maybe didn't think about. And it's not, not just around animals, but everything around it, right. That people are experiencing. Yes. Thank you, Cindy. Thanks for sharing that. And I look forward to the next event. I missed out on the most recent one. So I just, as well, um, I wanted to mention heysocialgood.com. So if you own a business, if you work for a business, go to heysocialgood.com and get your assessment completed and do better. We're all trying to do better, right? Every day. 
Yes. And, and it's, you can't do it one day. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. I mean, some, some businesses is taking them 20, 30 years. So yeah. And they're like mission focused and still taking them 20, 30 years. So I think that's the thing. That's why it's never too late to start. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's always, it's always good just to begin to think about it. Um, yeah. I love Definitely. that. Okay. And before we go into our wrap up rapid five, I have one final question before the final questions <laughs> is okay. Dr. Lynn, you do, you've just launched a film festival. You are co-founder and CEO of a business. I know you participate in multiple nonprofits are on multiple boards. How do you take care of yourself? What's your self-care so you can show up in the world for all these causes that you're so devoted to? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I think for me, um, I do yoga for sure. That's for me, part of yoga is meditating. Mm-hmm. I have to, and I would say the other thing is to remind myself. I mean, so it's funny because we talk about sustainable, how there's so many things to do, right? So to your point, it's like every day there's a lot for me to do. And I probably really just take it day by day. I don't, I, I know I can't do, I by, I'm by nature a perfectionist, but I'm like a recovering. Like I don't, I'm not because I know it's not possible. So I just set myself the three things I got to do today. Cause guess what? Tomorrow there's like 50 more things. So I already yeah. know that. So I just focus on like today, I'm going to finish those three things. And if I finish early, awesome. And I feel like tackling more, I will. If I don't, then I don't. And sometimes I'll even get to three and then I try to do the most I can. I realize it's the next day. So I, I really try to take a stepwise progression, which is what I tell businesses to do. Like I, cause I know I, I can't do it all. I just can't. I was just thinking that as you were saying this, I was like, Oh, this is such a nice summary for everything you've spoken about. It's just one day at a time. There's these seemingly insurmountable issues and problems. And it seems so overwhelming and it's just one day at a time, just incrementally better one day at a time. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining. We'll get into the wrap up rapid five, which I think trans or segues nicely into maybe what you're just saying. Uh, (laughs) What is your favorite daily habit? I'd love to wake up and read my gratitude app. Oh, what app do you use? It's called gratitude. (laughs) That's easy. Gratitude plug. Uh, I like it because it's, uh, it was actually a, also a startup. I, I randomly find it. I love new. So I'm also a techie person. I love new different apps, but I think I discovered this maybe three years ago. And when it started, it was really simple. Like all it was, was a, you just write, you put a photo to it. You maybe write two sentences and it saves it for you. Uh, but now it's also the point where they tell you a gratitude, like a, in a card every day. So, I so every morning. Every morning. So I don't even write my own gratitude anymore. I just read what, what I'm supposed to be grateful for. <laughs> Efficient. So, I love it. Yeah. So I just read them like, yes, I'm going to keep that in mind. Right. That's the first thing I do. Great. Oh, that's inspiring. I like that. Um, what are three things you'd bring to a deserted island? Uh, okay. I'm going to bring seeds. Very important. Uh, um, books and a water filter. I love it. True scientist. (laughs) What is your favorite environmental policy? Oh, super easy. The Endangered Species Act. Okay, great. It's the most amazing piece of legislation ever written. Um, I 
feel like the authors who wrote that were so um, forward thinking. Yeah, to one like if you, I know it's so random, but if you decide you're going to read environmental law or environmental statute, please go read the Environmental Endangered Species Act because it talks about not just protecting species, but it really the the crux of it is not the species as much the habitat. It's about protecting the habitat, which if you think about it, we're also species. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's my favorite. Like uh, I'm like you, you've inspired me to to maybe read it. <laughs> oh, you should. It's short too. It's oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. I I'll, I will read that now. What is your favorite flora or fauna? Insects. Insects. Any yeah. So one of my one of my earliest research is on um, Dactacin katydids, or type of grasshopper, and I did this research work in Costa Rica in the cloud forest. It's actually what got me into research, but I think insects, the fauna, it's the most amazing, like, you know, fauna ever. The, the diversity, the way they're able to mimic, the way they're able to adapt to their environment, like, so quickly, um, the way they change. I just find insects to always be fascinating. I love it. It's the first. <laughs> All right. So finish this thought. Wouldn't it be cool if? Wouldn't it be cool if every single person in this country or in the world was able on a daily basis to eliminate two pounds of trash from their daily use? Challenge accepted. It's not out there. And I didn't even say, I wanted to say more, but it's two pounds. And that's really, if you think about it, two pounds is like nothing. It's like 32 ounces. It's like a quarter, you know, I mean, sorry, uh, 32 ounces, like one of those bottles, 32 ounce bottles. Yeah. Like It's not about weight as much as imagine the, you know, the visual size of that. So it just means, can you reduce the trash in your waste bin? I love it. Thank you, Cindy. It's wonderful talking to you. I know we feel like we probably just skimmed the surface of all the things you're doing. Thank you for the amazing work you're doing for the environment, protecting us all. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for joining. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I I enjoy talking about it. Thank you so much, Jessa. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to be updated when new episodes are released and leave us a review to let us know what you think. It also really helps us to share the podcast with others who may enjoy learning about the environmental industry. If you want to submit a shout out or any feedback, please send an email or voice memo to podcast at califaep.org. The email again is podcast with an S, podcast at califaep.org.